Picture this. It's a warm, sunny day, and you've just arrived at the edge of the forest for a full day of hiking in the Allegheny National Forest. You've been wanting to get to the Spruce Knob Trail for some time now, as you've heard so many great things about those breathtaking views. As you climb the steep, rocky path leading high to the summit, you realize you weren't nearly as physically prepared as you thought you were. That, and the slight mugginess in the air have you thinking it's time for a break. Slightly out of breath, quickly you spot a fallen red maple tree on the side of the trail and decide that that's a great place to take a seat and eat your banana. Feeling re-energized from your little break, you continue on making it to the top. Seeing those beautiful views and the tranquil valley below, you start to make your way back. Taking in all that fresh air and feeling accomplished, you have a new sense of renewal. You're glad you finally got out in nature, and now you vow to do this whenever you get a chance. later you start to have a slight fever, chills, and a severe headache. You think you might be coming down with the flu or that dreaded COVID-19. So you get a rapid flu test and a COVID PCR test. Both come back negative. You stay home and rest up and try to get over whatever it is that's bugging you until you just can't. You later seek emergency care and eventually after many tests trying to get to the bottom of this unexplained pyrexia, a medical term for fever raised body temperature, you're told you have anaplasmosis. all you nature lovers out there and is intended to be an educational piece geared towards medical technologists, residents, fellows, nurses, and any small critter enthusiasts. This is not meant to be used for any formal medical advice, consultation, or diagnosing. As always, consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. In this special episode, we dive into what is anaplasmosis. Most people think of tick diseases as being Lyme disease. I know that is usually the first thing that goes to people's mind when they think they've gotten bitten by a tick. They think, do I have that bullseye rash? Oh my God, I'm going to get Lyme disease. But according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or better known as the CDC, anaplasmosis is also a tick-borne disease. So some may be thinking, wait, what? So this thing is born from ticks? Nope, nope. A tick-borne disease means that it was transmitted and carried by ticks that are actually infected with bacteria, viruses, or parasites that can cause disease. In this case, anaplasmosis is a disease caused by the bacterium called Anaplasma phagocytophilum. This is a lesser-known tick-borne disease. However, it really is on the rise, particularly in the Northeast United States. 
Tracking the actual numbers of tick-borne illnesses can prove difficult, particularly because of the vague symptoms such as unexplained fever, slightly elevated liver function panel results, uh, often seen with anaplasmosis. People may think that they have the flu or other unrelated infection because people really don't usually see that they've been bitten by the tick because they're so small. The particular ticks are most often the black-legged ticks, also called a deer tick, which are located in the northeast and midwestern part of the United States. Those are called Ixodes scapularis. Another known carrier of the disease is the western black-legged tick, Ixodes pacificus, which can be found along the west coast of the United States. Cases are more commonly reported in the northeast and midwest than the west coast. Let's get to know these guys a little bit better. The life cycle of an Ixodes scapularis tick generally lasts two years. During this time, they go through four life stages. You have the egg, larva, nymph, and adult. After the eggs hatch, the ticks must have a blood meal at every stage. Black-legged ticks can feed from mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians. The ticks need a new host at each stage of their life. Sometimes we humans are the unfortunate feast. Most people are unaware that they've even been bitten by a tick because they're so small. An adult black-legged tick measures one-eighth of an inch. A young nymph are about the size of a tiny pinhead. When you see these particular ticks, you'll notice that their color is brown to black and their legs are dark. When one thinks of ticks, they often go to the myth that they're an insect. Believe it or not, ticks are not insects. They're actually arachnids, like scorpions and spiders, and are considered an ectoparasite. That means that they actually live and get their meal on the outside of a host. When can you actually get this disease? Although cases of anaplasmosis can occur during any month of the year, the majority of cases reported to the CDC have an illness onset during the summer months and a peak in cases typically occur in June and July. This period is a season for nymphal black-legged ticks. Nymphal black-legged ticks bite people and can spread the pathogen. A second smaller peak occurs in October and November when adult black-legged ticks are most active. So like our hiker friend at the beginning of the story, people at risk are usually people over the age of 40 years old and anaplasmosis is highest among males. People with weakened immune systems, such as those occurring due to cancer treatments or advanced HIV infection, prior organ transplants, or some medications, might be at increased risk of severe outcomes. So people who live near or spend time in known tick habitats, such as forests and meadows, might be at increased risk for infection just because they're in the right place at the right time. When someone suspects they may have anaplasmosis, they'll present with nonspecific symptoms such as fever, headache, or myalgias, which means soreness and achiness in the muscles, which can range anywhere from being mild to severe. A rash is rarely reported in less than 10% of cases. It's important to know that there could be a possible co-infection so that the presence of a rash might indicate that the patient has a co-infection of something like Lyme disease or another tick-borne disease. Differential diagnosis of anaplasmosis includes a human monocytotropic ehrlichiosis, or HME, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, relapsing fever, tularemia, makes me think of the poor little bunnies, Lyme disease, 
Colorado tick fever, and one of my most favorite ones to say, babesiosis. <laughs> when considering anaplasmosis for a clinical diagnosis, it's important to uh, take thorough patient history. You want to ask them, have they been exposed to areas where ticks are commonly found, meaning forests, wooded areas, any place with high grasses, leaf litter. You want to ask them about their travel history, domestic and international to any area where anaplasmosis is endemic. And it never hurts to ask them, have they had any recent bug bites, even if they can't remember. It's recommended that treatment should never be delayed waiting for lab confirmatory tests. Diagnosis of anaplasmosis, more often than not, is generally based on the clinical signs and symptoms. It's important also to know that anaplasmosis is a nationally notifiable condition and should be reported to your state or local health department. So there are quite a few different laboratory tests that you can use to help with diagnosis. So the standard serological test for diagnosing anaplasmosis is the indirect immunofluorescence antibody, the IFA assay, that checks for um, immunoglobulin G, IgG, using um, A, phagocytophilum antigen. These IgG, IFA assays should be performed on paired acute and convalescent serum plasmas collected two to four weeks apart to demonstrate evidence of a fourfold seroconversion, meaning somebody who was once negative, now two positive. So antibody titers, or levels, are frequently negative in the first week of um, the illness. So anaplasmosis cannot be confirmed using single acute antibody results. Immunoglobulin M or IgM IFA assays may also be offered by reference labs. However, it's not necessarily indicators of an acute, severe infection and might be less specific than the IgG antibodies. Another laboratory test is the PCR test polymerase chain reaction. It's an amplification test performed on DNA extracted from whole blood specimens. It's a very sensitive in the first week of illness and decreases in sensitivity following administration of appropriate antibiotics within generally 24 to 48 hours. Other clinical laboratory tests include gram staining. It's a microbiology test. The bacteria that causes anaplasmosis is a gram-negative intracellular bacteria. For those of you who don't know what gram staining is, it's a microbiology technique that really helps us to identify two groups of bacteria based on different cell wall constituents. Gram-positive bacteria stain violet due to the presence of a thick layer of peptidoglycan in their cell wall. I like to call gram-positive positively purples. And gram-negative bacteria stain red. It's attributed to the thinner peptidoglycan wall, which doesn't retain the crystal violet during the decoloring process. Immunostaining the bone marrow biopsy, if one is taken, can actually diagnose it too. Sadly, hospital blood cultures cannot detect the organism. Culture isolation and immunohistochemical assays of this bacteria are generally only available at specialized laboratories. Sometimes a bone marrow biopsy is performed if a patient has cytopenia, meaning low levels of cells. The first time I've actually came across a case of anaplasmosis, uh, the patient actually did have pretty low platelet count. Another laboratory test that is often ordered uh, to confirm any kind of disease really seems to be a complete blood count or a CBC. If somebody does have a cytopenia, you'll definitely see it in the CBC. In the peripheral blood smear, which you make off of the CBC, you'll be able to see different kind of inclusions within the cells. In the land of hematology, where I currently reside, 
you'll see different, I guess, things inside red cells and white cells, such as neutrophils and monocytes. Peripheral blood smears are interesting because you can definitely see a reflection of a disease state inside somebody's cells. So in case of babesiosis, it can be diagnosed by identifying ring forms inside the red cells. The parasite generally looks like a Maltese cross. The human monocytotropic ehrlichiosis, or HME, which also presents with thrombocytopenia, leukopenia, and elevated liver enzymes. On the peripheral smear, you can see different morulae in monocytes. Unlike the morulae or microcolonies seen in HME in the monocytes, for anaplasmosis, you'll see the morulae or microcolonies in the cytoplasm of granulocytes or neutrophils. For anaplasmosis, the morulae present as like blue blobs inside um, the peripheral cytoplasm of the neutrophils. So that's not to be confused with doly bodies which are also blue-gray, light blue-gray, oval, uh, basophilic, meaning blue, leukocyte inclusions uh, seen in neutrophils. That's highly suggestive of a diagnosis for anaplasmosis. Although it's very suggestive, it's not exactly sensitive and shouldn't just be the only lab test uh, relied upon. PCR is often used in conjunction with that. So now that you've done all your lab tests and you conclusively say this person does indeed have anaplasmosis, what to treat the patient with? Well, first off, the case fatality rate or the proportion of anaplasmosis patients that reportedly died as a result of infection has remained low at less than 1%. So that's a good sign. Doxycycline is a drug of choice for adults and children of all ages with anaplasmosis. So the fever um, generally will subside within 24 to 48 hours after administration of this drug. And it's the most effective at preventing the severe complications that can be seen from anaplasmosis if it started early during the disease. The CDC recommends patients with suspected anaplasmosis should be treated with doxycycline for 10 to 14 days to provide appropriate length of therapy um, for any possible concurrent Lyme disease infections. Rivampin has been used successfully for some pregnant women um, with anaplasmosis, though Rivampin is not effective in treating Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which is sometimes confused with anaplasmosis, and it's not an effective treatment for potential co-infection with Lyme disease. So generally, doxycycline is the go-to number one uh, antibiotic to treat suspected cases. Thanks for joining me on the Lab Calling Podcast. I hope I shed some light on all the different things that you could find out there in Mother Nature and hopefully didn't deter anybody from going out there because the benefits that we get with that fresh air is way more than any paranoia of getting a disease.